Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is an expert in sustainability and environmental footprinting, Tom Gill from Proma International. Tom works with lots of UK retailers and big agri-food companies on sustainability and environmental footprinting, so we had a really interesting conversation about the challenges around carbon, the different environmental labelling schemes that are coming to the market at the moment, and of course the importance of robust data to underpin sustainability claims. So that's coming up in a moment, but first let me bring you up to speed with some of the big stories in food and grocery retail this week. It was the NFU conference and things got a little confrontational, NFU President Minette Batters delivered a hard-hitting speech criticising the government for putting out contradictory policies on food and farming, not understanding how the food sector works, and letting down farmers by not having a clear post-Brexit strategy. Batters was also re-elected as NFU President for a further two years this week. RAP has published new research debunking the idea that single-use plastic extends the shelf life of fresh produce. It called on supermarkets to ditch single-use plastic on uncut fruit and veg where possible. Morrison's announced it's ditching HDPE plastic bottles on nine fresh milk skews in favour of cartons. The retailer said the move would lead to a significant reduction in plastic, but it's already sparked lots of debate in the industry about the relative sustainability benefits of HDPE versus cartons, so expect to keep hearing about this for some time. Innocent has had one of its ads banned after the ASA found it made misleading environmental claims. The regulator said the ad suggested purchasing Innocent's products had a positive impact on the environment, but the company had not provided evidence to demonstrate that its products had a net positive environmental impact over their full life cycles. Kraft Heinz has formed a new global joint venture to accelerate its push into the plant-based market. It's teamed up with food tech startup The Knot Company to develop new plant-based products. Investor appetite for recipe box companies continues, with Gusto this week raising another $230 million. It comes after the company doubled its sales during the pandemic. Asda is facing potential disruption to supermarket deliveries after thousands of lorry drivers and warehouse staff rejected a pay deal. Strike action is now on the cards. Tesco has expanded its partnership with rapid delivery company Gorillas to Manchester. 
It comes after two Tesco stores in Thornton Heath and Lewisham in London started offering rapid deliveries through Gorillas in October last year. And finally, Carl Icahn, the prominent investor, is piling pressure on McDonald's over the treatment of pigs in its supply chain. McDonald's had pledged to phase out gestational crates, but Icahn says the company is taking longer than promised to make good on its pledge. He has launched a board fight over the issue in a sign that investors and shareholders are increasingly ramping up the pressure on sustainability and ethical issues. These are some of the big food and grocery retail stories this week. You can find links to everything I mentioned in the show notes or on thepicklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Tom Gill. Tom, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for inviting me and really lovely to be here with you. You are Head of Sustainability at Promar International, the agri-food consultancy. Long-time listeners of the podcast will remember that we had one of your colleagues, John Giles, on the pick list back all the way in December 2020. But you and John do quite different things at Promar. You are the sustainability expert and you are particularly involved in all things carbon and environmental footprinting. So I was super keen to have you on the podcast because there's so much work happening around carbon and environmental footprinting and labeling, and it's all rather complicated. So I thought I need someone to come on the podcast to help me and listeners understand what the hell is going on. (laughs) (laughs) But before I quiz you on that, tell us just a little bit about yourself. What is your background and how did you end up working in sustainability? Yeah, sure. So um, I have worked in and around the sustainability environmental sector um, for a little bit longer than I care to uh, remember, (laughs) but yeah, about just over 20 years now. Um, So I started um, within uh, the national parks and sort of uh, national uh, government policy, Um, moved into more regional government um, in the middle 2000s, Uh, and then moved into consultancy from about 2007. So initially worked for a company that was more working around European policy connected into sort of food, agriculture, sustainability uh, activities at that time. So we had um, a lot of uh, actions within the UK where we were drawing on framework programs, sort of five, six and seven monies that were coming into all sorts of different initiatives that led into probably what we would have known as the RHI, the feed-in tariff activities, through into you know, actions driving um, rural development programme spending relevant to kind of the, the sustainability world that we would kind of know as today. But uh, I did that for about four years and then moved into Promar in uh, early 2011 and came in with a remit really to develop the capability within the business um, quite uh, 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 an exciting opportunity in the sense that Promar probably wasn't really known at that time for having that level of knowledge and capability, but very well known in farming circles, a strong client base at farm level, work with um, some of the key retailers across the industry, uh, particularly Tesco, and obviously part of the wider genus business, which um, providing genetic solutions into you know, beef, dairy and pig sectors. And over that time, have been fortunate to grow the team to about 18 people now. We're based in the UK and in Germany, uh, working with a, a really exciting and, and cool set of clients, I feel. Um, 
also working on topics, as you say, that are complicated. Um, I'm, I think there are people in the team that are way more skilled in some of the topics that we'll probably touch on tonight. But I, I do enjoy the fact that we're working in a very collaborative way, which I think is vital around topics that no one organisational person has all the answers to. And you already said, you know, things like carbon footprinting that are inherently quite complicated. Could you do an explanation of carbon footprinting for dummies, i.e. what exactly is it and how does it work, just in sort of very simple terms? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I think it's important to say that there are, if you like, there are two forms or two elements to, to, to footprinting. So we want to understand the greenhouse gas emissions associated to organisations. So we have footprinting that's very much about understanding those organisational impacts the flows of, of the responsibility that that organization would have. So people will be familiar or becoming familiar to the terms of scope one and two. And that's that direct and indirect responsibility, particularly to the utilization of, of embedded emissions. So products that we buy, uh, but also the use or generation of fuel and energy and heat that we would use within our infrastructure and buildings within ag and food type companies. And we can, you know, to really put it simply, we would, amass that, that, the resolution of that data against each of those streams that would form an inventory for a business or an organization or a supply chain. We can calculate those emissions relevant to emissions factors and then generate a relevant reporting framework that would connect to the type of product flow or the, the financial reporting information that that organization would produce in order that we can create comparability uh, between different types of companies that would operate within that uh, sphere of work. So that's the organizational footprint side of it in a very pithy format. The, the side that probably generates as much or even more interest and, 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 and question, if you will, is the product footprinting. And that would be where we would start to then talk about, you know, a, 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 a footprint per, per liter or per kilo of a product relevant to the, um, uh, the carbon dioxide equivalence. And we use carbon dioxide equivalence to make that comparable again between different product types or, 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 or foodstuffs, depending on what, they're, uh, what we're particularly focusing on. And we would identify the group, the boundary that would sit around that product. So if in, in the case we might touch on um, through our discussions this evening about the, the growers or farmers that are responsible for the products that a, a retailer or a processor doesn't have that direct control over, we would identify what those parameters of, of influence that are re relevant to the production of that product. And then we can report that for each grower or farm that would sit within that supply chain. But we can then also aggregate that information to understand at a representative level for the volume or the literage or whatever it might be, that that supply chain needs to take that associated impact because it couldn't onwardly sell its wares in whatever form without that engagement with those growers or farmers, uh, depending again, which particular type of product that we're looking at. So um, I appreciate I've not gone into each of the lens of the details, but just to try and make that distinction between organizational and product is very important, but also being clear about the boundaries and the scope and the quality of the data that comes into 
the calculations that we're going to undertake and the report output that that farmer or grower wants to use or that supply chain would like to use for identifying a roadmap over a say a two, five and 10 year period to get to even the point about thinking about, well, is net zero a, a real possibility is, is absolutely vital. So we get very stuck on methodology and tools and systems when actually we probably need to be more focused on what well, is our data representative and rights for what we're trying to calculate and report on. And do you find when you're working with companies in the agri-food sector, they start their carbon footprinting journey typically by looking at the organizational footprint and trying to capture that and then they look at developing footprints for individual products or does it vary it it varies a lot I I think in reality um, and yeah being quite frank I I I think a lot of the time somebody else has asked them to do Mm -hmm. something and then it's like oh my goodness, what do I need to do, is the general reaction. Um, I, I think in fairness, you know, the, 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 your, I think your point is, is right, Julia. The, the majority of, of relatively growing or mature companies have started to develop, you know, good capability and, and teams within organisations to just try and, you know, get gain control and confidence over the process that they're about to embark on. But when you take you know, the, the, the high proportion of SMEs that dominate our industry, I think a sizable number of them don't really understand and are quite worried about the mandatory guidance that we're, we're all trying to respond to. Um, certainly when you have then issues like um, uh, the energy crisis that we're kind of facing at the moment as one particular topic, like, where, well, where do you wait? the importance at that given time you know we've got an energy bill that's growing and growing and growing and we need to do something but then somebody else within the industry is asking us to say well what's your emission level either for the organization or for the the supply chain that that is particularly responsible for those emissions and it at the end of the day all of those are interconnected and in fairness if we could just gain that clarity of what our hotspots are as a as an organization and then identify well actually what's the burning issue that we need to deal with now and then phase that in and thinking right in three months six months time we'll start to calculate report our emissions level that that's okay being quite open and frank with the customer bases that businesses are working with I think they appreciate the, the complexities that we're dealing with at the moment but just having a plan but being clear and structured about the direction of travel is as, I think is as important about turning around to somebody tomorrow on the phone and saying, you know, our footprint is X because it's, it's more that confidence that you are trying to gain some understanding and control, which is probably as critical right now, really. And it, I imagine it must be quite difficult for companies occasionally to hold their nerve on that, because as you say, there is quite a lot of pressure. There are retailers um, making demands, there are regulators making demands, but also you know, there are opportunities to use carbon claims in consumer facing communications and to maybe differentiate your product. So, you know, I I know we'll talk about greenwashing and the risks of using dodgy data a little bit later when we talk (laughs) about your articles, but that must be, that's, that must be a tricky balance to get right, that you want to take action, you want to go out there and, and say something positive, but you also need to make sure that whatever you're basing that on is robust. Uh, absolutely and I think 
there's you know the the this is the the adage of you know less haste more speed i think is never wrong more true really at the same time i think not being frightened of saying something or saying that we're at the beginning of the journey um i think is quite it, it because you say it's quite refreshing i think it's actually just as an as an equal important step really so as as an example i i know um you know we're involved and very excited to be working with um, uh, Dunbeer and Dawn and, and the Carbon Trust on the Bigger Steps programme that's just starting to kind of gain some visibility and, and some really good communications that Jill and the team and Sarah have done recently. But it's not said, you know, we've got the answers now. It's just that this is a direction that we're aiming to kind of go in and going to try and share at the right times what, you know, we're learning from this work. And you know that 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 that's what it needs. It needs the leaders and the um, and and some of the key players just to show the leadership. That then I think it probably desensitizes at some level at farm level. Like it's, it's okay to say, Do you know what, we're trying, but we don't have the answer now. Well, for a far, you know, if you pull this right down to the grower or farmer level, you know, it, it can be it can be feel quite. Um, um, difficult to obtain the information or create the time in a business that's constantly trying to produce a fast-moving good to just take a step back and, and look at the business in a very different way. But we're in a place where we, we're going to need to do that. And I think it's the responsibility of you know, myself and peers across the industry to, to provide, I think, a level of calmness but also a level of like supported confidence to kind of help them just make that next step, really. Absolutely. And I think what you just said about um, bringing the farmers and grower base um, on along with the journey, I think actually brings us perfectly to one of the first articles um, <laughs> that we were going to talk about. Uh, this is a piece from the FT and the headline is PepsiCo squares up to supply chain emissions challenge. This is reporting on PepsiCo's efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions throughout its supply chain by at least 40% by 2030. And as you alluded to earlier, that includes suppliers and customers. So they can't do it alone. This is something where they absolutely need everyone in the supply chain to come along on the journey. Um, and that is not easy. Currently... No. Only 8% of uh, their suppliers have science-based climate targets. And the article talks specifically about how difficult it can be to persuade farmers and growers to change their practices um, and, and to come along um, on the journey. Tom, obviously, this is something that you, you are dealing with all the time as well, as you've just alluded to. What stood out to you from this article and what have you seen work in terms of persuading uh, the, the farmer and grower base to, to, to come along? Yeah, sure. I, I think there were, there were two kind of key elements within the article that kind of stood out for me. I think probably the, the question that some um, readers of the article would take by what does a science-based tar target actually mean? And we haven't really sort of touched touched on that aspect yet um but but we can do um but then the the topic of actually maybe you know the underlying message is that emissions is is one metric but we maybe we need to have our lens wider but we need to kind of have a lens to 
to move the topic away from purely just emissions and think about packaging, plastic waste, the impacts on the water environment. We get very fixated on one topic, but we've got to not lose visibility of, of a wider agenda around whatever products that, that we're retailing. I liked what you said, though, about science-based targets. And you're right, we should probably talk about what that means. How, how would you define science-based targets? To try and keep it as pithy as possible, Julia, I think you know, within, within the guidance and structures that we work to, um, any, um, any business will identify um, an intensity ratio, a reporting ratio to make relevant the, the emission impact so those, those kilos of, of, or tons of, 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 of greenhouse gas emissions or expressed as CO2 equivalents relevant to the, the maybe, as I say, the, the profit or turnover performance of the company to make it from a, 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 an annual reporting standard understandable to any reader or, or shareholder, investor or vested interest that wants to go and look at what that particular company is doing, but also its impact environmentally. A science-based target is kind of taking that a, a, a stage further by identifying that in line with the, um, um, the COP uh, agenda and the targets that have been identified through the agreements, particularly linked back to the Paris Agreement in 2015, there was a quick commitment and recognition by all member states that we need to have any targets around emission reduction set to a science-based level to try and keep emissions were generated by that business or by its um, activities and responsibilities within a, a, a scenario of what's usually discussed at the moment to one and a half degrees. So we're trying to keep global emissions to a one and a half degree scenario. Well, how does that business associate its, its target setting wrapped around a one and a half degree scenario relevant to what its business operations would look like? And it's, it's really expressing that, that, that target setting, but also that baseline against it, rather than saying, well, you know, we could, um, we could just reduce our emissions by, say, 30%. Well, mm-hmm. if that 30% still means that we're at a two, two and a half, three degree scenario, well, it's maybe not getting us in the right direction. Now, I should say that it's, it's kind of a voluntary commitment, but there's a growing movement to kind of move in that direction of science-based reporting. Um, it, it is scrutinised um, by you know, one or two organisations to ensure from a disclosures perspective, particularly for the bigger companies, that there's no over greenwashing or overstatement of commitments that are being made. But it, it, it's probably something for the majority of, of, um, of businesses operating in the food and agricultural industry to be aspiring to set, but probably working from the point of knowing what its current baseline is. And then identifying, well, if we want to be um, continuing to, to, to kind of move in a direction of sustainability integration into our business, probably our customer base, you know, particularly if it's ending up in the retail chain, they're probably setting those standards to that SBTI level. Maybe we just need to be looking in that direction at that right moment. But it I appreciate your listeners will be all at different levels of, of understanding and capability. And certainly if, if anybody Googled Science-Based Targets Initiative, they'd find out some good information relevant to it, Julia. 
And in terms of um, bringing your supply base along yes. um, and making sure everyone is bought in to the journey, but also has the tools and the resources to do what is required. Yeah. What have you seen work? What's a yeah. good approach? I think it varies um, customer to customer, but I think the the element here is is trust and visibility, and that you're that you're not over asking your supply base to do things that you as a business aren't already trying to do. So if we link this right back to some of the earlier principles that if you like, I grew up or did my studies through, through my first degree through, you know, a lot was linked around a Rio summit in 1992. There was a lot around um, the agenda of local agenda 21 and having, you know, reciprocity kind of built into that, you know, we're not going to over ask or under ask anybody, but, and you can't make this all completely participatory. There has to be some mandatory setting down but you've got to bring people with you. And certainly with, a, with, with working with, um, in whichever part of the globe where, um, where there are different expectations, responsibilities and, and, and trust levels that exist within supply chains, you, you need to build that, that, that equal level of understanding with a view then of starting to say, well, these are what the expectations would need to be. And I think certainly <clears throat> there's one or two retail chains that we work with, I work with, where I've seen really good experiences of that. I've also worked in one or two where they've not gone, gone so well. And I think it all comes back to that confidence, that trust and that openness that's taken to like, here's the, the what, the why, but, we, we, but the how. And I think it's kind of where we all sit at the moment we're all looking at each other thinking, well, who moves first and what do we do next? When actually we need to solve the how together and we need to show that that can be achieved over a phase period. It can bring, um, you know, we, we can't have any of the pillars of sustainability working separately to each other. And we need to have the economics supporting the reinvestment into the actions that are then going to maybe address either social or environmental issues in a far quicker and accelerated way than we have in the past. And, and that, that's how we've got to create the momentum, which frankly is never really happening fast enough, to be honest, because we never invest enough time in building the trust and, and the how. It just, it just, it sadly just doesn't happen, but that's where it needs to happen more. And, and do you find that building the trust and giving growers and farmers confidence is best achieved through long-term contracts and giving some kind of security around, you know, there's going to be a market for, for how you are producing some of these products? Well, it, it, there's, a, there's a whiff of, isn't there? You know, a what's in it for me? Mm. Um, there's probably more WIFM elements around that now than purely just a financial or a contract measure, but it's certainly not, not going to help. And if we, if we relay what we're talking now into security of supply, well, and also thinking about brand confidence, brand trust, well, both of those elements work very well to what we're talking about now. Now, I, I don't work in the chain in, in the sense of being the person that's having those negotiations and, 
I don't doubt it's it's they're not easy conversations to have and there needs to be an element of competitiveness to try and keep driving lean efficiency and improvement but we've also got to accept that the some of these challenges or building soil carbon or um or trying to invest in a technology that's really going to de-risk us from an energy point of view they're not they're not quick wins they they are initially there can be some real gains particularly if we're energy intensive in some kind of way but the reality is they require some long-term investment and commitment and if we're not meeting that back the other way with a, a security of supply and a, and a and a sustainability sort of risk agenda all we just serve to do is create uncertainty and and a lack of confidence that well we already know that's kicking around in the industry so why are we why are we serving to that still um and i we've it, it's, we've got to change and evolve the conversation and the mindset, Julia. It's it, it, otherwise we're just going to keep hitting the same, the same barriers, the same walls. And and I think sort of thinking about the the second article that we're going to talk about, that level of uncertainty, I think also filters through to the consumer facing yes. side. One of the articles you picked is from Feed Navigator. And the headline is New Environmental Labeling System Unveiled. Uh, this is reporting on the launch of EnviroScore, which is a labeling system developed by a group of academics from Belgium. And it's designed to make it easier for consumers to see at a glance uh, the environmental impact of different food products and, to your point earlier, be able to compare and contrast and say uh, within this category or even within across yeah. categories this is a, a, a more environmentally friendly option than something else and the idea is basically you get a score from a to e based on 16 different sustainability factors including how and where the product is produced transported and distributed um of course enviroscore is not the only such <laughs> scheme and this is where where the the trouble starts and mm. uh, there's also ecoscore which is a french system that's being trialed quite extensively on the continent. It's being tried by Lidl in Scotland as well. There is Foundation Earth, which is uh, being backed by Nestle, among others, and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of other schemes. Why did you pick this article, Tom? What was the key <laughs> message you took from it? I think, uh, I think the, if we start with the second question first, if mm. you will, Julia, I think the, the key message that I took from it is is just how embryonic we are in the further development of the of the plethora of labeling activities uh, in in product labeling um, uh, innovation that we're, st we're we're starting to see um, and i think i think it's it's a look i picked it as a lookout i think there's a lot of concern about you know the nutriscore the the agenda that sits behind some of the nutritional involvement and labeling side of things, which is quite understandable given the, the pitching of different, you know, superfoods or products to other ones, which are deemed to be more impactful, maybe without having the relevance of comparison uh, to say, you know, the emissions per, per nutrient density of a, of a product, for example. And I think EnviroScore or this example of where a lab labeling might evolve to I think is something we need to have a real kind of lens on in the industry 
but and be quite clear about well what are the objectives that we're actually trying to achieve certainly the consumer data is very variable about how much that drives uh, a changing consumer product decision making but also their willingness to pay doesn't really uh, reflect what their decision making then happens within store or whatever product that they're particularly kind of buying but I think if we aren't cognizant to the direction and desire for more information with that conscientious, conscientious consumer and that really that's going to be the dominant um, uh, structure of our consumer base for probably going forwards it'd be very interesting to see what it's like for my kids uh, you know, 10 or 15 years older about what their influences kind of come in here. And um, it's also comparing as well. You know, we talked a lot about emissions and how we quantify and report. This is life cycle assessments is a different level in itself, but the extent to which that we can have comparability between different products on the basis of actually, well, would they really be, be able to compare? You know, it talks about 150, 20 or so different kind of product labels that this could be applicable to, but you, know, you can't really have certain product stuffs being compared in, in a similar fashion. It could start to become quite misleading. And I think we need to have a debate on it about what we're trying to do, what we want to influence, rather than just having a label for label's sake, really. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because trials are underway and... I suppose the danger is that if you get a retailer um, who picks a particular approach to labeling, that might not, that's, that's not a democratic decision. That's a single business no. making a decision. And then you've created a precedent in the market. Yeah. And I, I, I also, I do think, I do wonder how, how businesses need to strike the right balance between um, being critical and asking tough questions of these schemes but also understanding there is no perfect scheme. No. And at some point, if you agree that it is important to have some kind of mechanism for consumers that allows them to compare products on environmental performance, I, I suppose you need to start finding reasons to say yes to something rather than to say no to something. Because the saying yeah. no is really easy. The, every single scheme has problems, limitations and flaws. Yeah what's it going to take to say you know what actually we're going to say yes to something yeah yeah and how and how do you weight different metrics that might be very important within a product so you know there's there's you know the, the article comments about you know there being something in the region of you know 450 500 different types of labels some which might be more ethically morally driven say the fair trade or a kind of agenda to those that are probably more environmentally or you know footprint footprint related they're all trying to achieve a slightly different kind of objective or all, all probably with an intention of selecting a parameter of sustainability but you know it, it's even in the name isn't it and please don't if any listeners or if you say it's not being critical of the name EnviroScore but do we not do, do we not rank or value like social sustainability if it's sitting within a um, a product that, that that might be more associated to some some challenges around ethical and fair labor? M maybe that's the more prevalent and key risk factor that needs to be identified within that score, in addition to whatever its emission level or, or 
water quality or biodiversity impact level might be. And it's interesting, there's a group around Tim Lang, isn't there, that's developing what's known as the Omni label, which is looking at health and, and also social impacts and tries to sort of put all of that together. Yeah. I guess, you know, if we're talking about doing scoring on environmental grounds, that alone is crazily complicated yeah if you now say okay fine I also want to have nutrition in there and I want to have social impacts it, you you just multiply the the complexity you do. don't you yeah you do but it but I think the 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 questions upon the industry and the scrutiny which at times is kind of fair and the the, the multi-layered approach about how we achieve you know the, the objectives of say in the UK from a food strategy point of view we can't just have one particular kind of lens on it. And I think that's kind of where, you know, if, if kind of another, not quite a labeling, but, a, um, you know, a, a, an objective area, you know, the global farm metric agenda to, to look on a much broader kind of suite of, of, um, of, of action areas that, that a, a product or a, a, a chain might be kind of taking starts to have a lot more relevance because, at some point, it'd be interesting to know for as this starts to develop and grow, or how does a, a grower or producer within a product category look at their product or their contribution to that product for when it lands in, on shelf? And actually, how much do they understand and how much does that feed through to whatever their improvement areas might be? Does it done done badly? It could help them. No, it could cause them to feel vilified, or, or well, why am I doing this? Um, done done positively can help them in that agenda to keep that shift towards a you know a low carbon transition. And that you know, every every aspect of our industry can move constructively towards that that low carbon agenda. But, but does does a label start to vilify it and? result in you know unintended consequences that we start to ship or move product from different parts of the world that are never even going to do this kind of labeling because it's to your earlier point it's not been decided or adopted by the the regulatory parameters or the food structures that would ever exist within their their their, their region or area it's yeah it's a very interesting space uh, we clearly need to have this innovation come through but we probably need a broader church of people together to get to a, uh, a better solution, maybe. Absolutely. And um, I know we'll get to talk about um, the importance of robust data, which you've talked about at, at various points um, in, in a second. But I think, you know, just to kind of go back to what you were saying there, yes, we need to um, make sure that whatever system we have gives us the outcome that we're looking for. I suppose this is partly where the problem is, though. There is no one vision of what a good, sustainable, healthy food system looks like. And in a way, some of the mess we're seeing around having a multiplicity of, of, of schemes is a reflection of that. There are lots of people within food today who do not see eye to eye on some fundamental questions of what is good, healthy, sustainable food. So, of course, they will come up with completely contradictory metrics uh, yes. at some point. Yeah, it's... 
God, it just it sounds incredibly difficult to unpick, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and to make things even worse, we're now going to talk about data quality because you picked a, a really interesting piece from Edie. Uh, the headline is Fashion Firms Using Zombie Data to Mislead on Sustainability Claims. As the headline suggests, this is about uh, greenwashing in the fashion industry. And it's data-led greenwashing, um, essentially. I really like the term zombie data. I'd not come across it before I read this article. Um, but it's defined here as data that is false, unverifiable, or lacking credibility. Um, and there's some new research that's cited in the article that suggests that in the fashion industry, uh, companies are using and abusing zombie data to make claims about sustainability that do not reflect how sustainable they and their products actually are. So this is about fashion, but greenwashing is very high on the agenda in the food industry as well. Mm. Do you think the food industry has a zombie data problem? I think I think there are plenty of cases, aren't there, where we have a zombie data problem. And I think I and I, I think we're all probably one of the reasons why to one of your earlier comments or questions and, and our discussion kind of relates around some of that nervousness to say too much because of that that worry that that the data and the information will be um, unpicked. Um, but I think I think there's a there's a commitment to trying to resolve that that issue. Um, and to build that kind of confidence and transparency, particularly given the connection to foodstuffs. Um, you, know, you think about the number of um, cases of whether it's um, the horse meat scandal or links to kind of BSE going a long time back. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a human health connection, which almost at all costs, we can't allow um, that incorrectness of data, but inevitably, it, you know, people, humans make mistakes, don't they? Um, but I do th the interest around the article and the commentary in it. I think, given where we've reached uh, within the agricultural and food industry, and the, and the intensity of the lens upon us to be doing the right thing, for the fact that other industries don't appear to entirely be taking the same level of responsibility around, around topics that can have some detrimental impacts. Certainly, again, to pick up on that sort of ethical and fair labor treatment perspective, I, I just don't think we could be credible as an industry if we're allowing ourselves to get to a point where we're having constant, we're almost putting forward data that we know not to be true. It just wouldn't be tolerated, I don't think. But it, but it's going, it, it, it will happen. Um, and I think it's probably important within the industry that if you're if you're new to these topics or you know, again going back to the example I used before about wanting to make certain claims or statements about not having soil or palm, you know, within your chain, you've got to be absolutely on it with the information that you're drawing on, because the consequence of not uh, not meeting what the expectation of of, of a, an onward retailer. Or the or the the intensity of the NGO sector to ask questions about well how can you really make that claim? It's we have no hiding place, um, and 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 if we're somehow navigating around that, I think that that's a real brand risk for a lot of us that we probably wouldn't want to be awake at night thinking like that, Julia. Really, 
Totally. And it, you know, greenwashing is very high on regulators' agenda now. This week, the ASA came out and slapped down Innocent over some yes, environmental claims that. that they made in an advert that they um, that they couldn't substantiate to the extent that the um, the ASA was looking for. There's so much more pushback now. And I don't, I don't. It, it's kind of a not sort of moving away from the the, the the data element, but it does have a relationship of that. When, when we start to think through and plan for what, what changes or what statements we wish to make, I, I don't see enough evidence in the industry that we think about those synergies and trade-offs that for, for actually that we could predict or think about. Whilst it might not be um, a data-led issue, we've got to make sure that the, the, the statements and the verifiable change that we make We've thought through those those unintended consequences as as, uh, as as effectively as possible to to continue to gain the trust and belief of all those actors that sit around the food industry that we take our responsibility seriously. Absolutely, and again, I'm sort of bringing it back to something that you raised earlier. The overarching outcome we still want here is for people to take action on sustainability to improve the impact they're having on the environment and to also feel confident that they can share what they're doing. Because it sounds, you know, very easy can feel like there's this long list of problems and long list of reasons why you should just shut up and never talk about this because you're <laughs> going to get accused of greenwashing. Your data is probably rubbish. It's all terribly complicated, but not losing sight of the fact that, no, we still want to make sure that people feel that they can communicate yeah. transparently and openly about uh, about yeah. what they're doing and, and i think as we move into you know an area where we have risk as what yeah probably many areas actually we, where we have some risk but i think we're starting to be more cognizant to it but we need to be careful about the claims that we start to make is where i think we have probably a high degree of zombie data risk around the whole um soil carbon sequestration agenda julia and the the claims about offsetting or what what balancing of our scales that we have towards a net zero agenda, we probably start to make some claims that actually we can't really substantiate because we don't have the evidence and information to support it. But oh, because we have all of this land, oh, it's, it's all going to be okay. The, re, the, the reality is always quite a bit different and every parcel of land has a, a different potential and every parcel of land probably can't be planted with trees because we run in the same way we run into risk of do we stick solar panels on that bit of land or do we grow some food? It's an equally similar uh, paradox that we face uh, on that agenda. So again, it's it's back to this sort of planning roadmap, um, visibility of those trade-offs and synergies that we seek to meet these multiple of objectives that are going to get us to that, you know, End, end game that we aim for which there isn't really an end game we've just got to keep improving every year with every step down the road absolutely tom we are out of time <laughs> thank you so much for a, a really interesting conversation if people want to connect with you what's the best way to do that um people can reach out to me through linkedin um they'll find me on there i'm on twitter as well for my sins <laughs> And um, very happy if people want to uh, email or ring me. Um, my contact details are on the Promo website. So, you know, lots of different ways to kind of reach out and, and really keen to kind of be, be part of the, the conversation 
because you know uh, you know there's there's lots of really great people within the industry there's a bigger commitment to working together and i think the more that we do the more that we'll try and resolve some of the difficult topics that we've hopefully covered in some good detail tonight so thank you very much again julia really good to be with you thank you tom thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.